Just before beginning the conclusion of Robinson Crusoe, I'd like to do one little pitch for something that really helps the production of these free podcasts. CandlelightStories.com has a sound story club. And that means that for $9.95, you can get sound stories for one year. We do things like Snow White, Cinderella, The Arabian Nights, The Emperor's New Clothes, Puss in Boots, and so on. They are usually produced with sound effects and original music, so they're a bit more involved than the free Robinson Crusoe podcast is. Uh, now, there are a good number of people listening to the Robinson Crusoe podcast, and if even only half of those listeners went and purchased a Sound Story Club membership that would really, truly help CandlelightStories.com do this kind of thing. So if you're at all interested, go to CandlelightStories.com, look for the Sound Story Club. It's right there on the homepage, and it's only $9.95 for a whole year, and you get more than 30 mp3 files there's no drm no digital rights management or any nonsense like that associated they're just straight mp3 files you can download them you can put them on cds you can do whatever you want with uh, you can't sell them or make many copies and distribute them all over the place but you can certainly put them on cd and enjoy them pretty much any way you want to so give it a shot candlelightstories.com the sound story club 9.95 for a year Thank you very much, and enjoy the conclusion of Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe, Part 17, Conclusion This recording, copyright Candlelight Stories, Inc., available at candlelightstories.com Narrated by Alessandro Chima A Candlelight Stories audio production The Life and Strange, Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe, of York, Mariner, by Daniel Defoe. Anyone may guess how readily such a proposal would be accepted by men in their condition. They fell down on their knees to the captain and promised, with deep imprecations, that they would be faithful to him to the last drop, and that they should owe their lives to him, and would go with him all over the world, that they would own him for a father to them as long as they lived, well, says the captain, I must go and tell the governor what you say and see what I can do to bring him to consent to it. So he brought me an account of the temper he found them in, and that he verily believed they would be faithful. However, that we might be very secure, I told him he should go back again, and choose out five of them, and tell them that they should see he did not want men, but that he would take out those five to be his assistants, and that the governor would keep the other two and the three that were sent prisoners to the castle, my cave, as hostages for the fidelity of those five, and if they proved unfaithful in the execution, the five hostages should be hanged in chains alive upon the shore. This looked severe, and convinced them that the governor was in earnest. However, they had no way left them but to accept it, and it was now the business of the prisoners as much as of the captain to persuade the other five to do their duty. Our strength was now thus ordered for the expedition. First, the captain, his mate, and passenger. Second, then the two prisoners of the first gang, to whom, having their characters from the captain, I had given their liberty and trusted them with arms. Third, the other two, whom I had kept in my bower, pinioned. These were now released. Fourth, these five, released at last, 
so that there were twelve in all, besides five we kept in the cave, as hostages for the fidelity of the others. I asked the captain if he was willing to venture with those hands on board the ship, for as for me and my man Friday, I did not think it proper for us to stir, having seven men left behind, and it was employment enough for us to keep them asunder and supply them with victuals. As to the five in the cave, I resolved to keep them fast, but Friday went twice a day to them, to supply them with necessaries, and I made the other two carry provisions to a certain distance where Friday was to take it. When I showed myself to the two hostages, it was with the captain, who told them I was the person the governor had ordered to look after them, and that it was the governor's pleasure they should not stir anywhere, but by my direction, that if they did, they should be fetched to the castle and be laid in irons, so that we never suffered them to see me as governor. So now I appeared as another person, and spoke of the governor, the garrison, the castle, and the like, upon all occasions. The captain now had no difficulty before him but to furnish his two boats, stop the breach of one, and man them. He made his passenger captain of one with four other men. He himself, with his mate and five more, went in the other. And they contrived their business very well, for they came up to the ship about midnight. As soon as he came within call of the ship, he made Robinson hail them, and tell them he had brought off the men and the boat, but that it was a long time before they had found them and the like, holding them in chat till they came to the ship's side, when the captain and the mate, entering first with their arms, immediately knocked down the second mate and the carpenter with the butt-end of their muskets, being very faithfully seconded by their men. They secured all the rest that were upon the main and quarter-decks, and began to fasten the hatches to keep them down who were below, when the other boat and the men entering the forechain secured the forecastle of the ship, and the scuttle which went down into the cook-room, making three men they found there prisoners. When this was done, and all safe upon the deck, the captain ordered the mate with three men to break into the roundhouse where the new rebel captain lay, and he, having taken the alarm and gotten up, now stood with two men and a boy, having firearms in their hands, and when the mate, with a crow, split open the door, the new captain and his men fired boldly among them, and wounded the mate with a musket-ball, which broke his arm, and wounded two more of the men, but killed nobody. The mate, calling for help, rushed, however, into the roundhouse, wounded as he was, and with his pistol shot the new captain through the head, the bullet entering at his mouth, and came out again behind one of his ears, so that he never spoke a word, upon which the rest yielded and the ship was taken effectually, without any more lives lost. As soon as the ship was thus secured, the captain ordered seven guns to be fired, which was the signal agreed upon with me, to give me notice of his success, which, you may be sure, I was glad to hear, having sat watching upon the shore for it till two o'clock in the morning. Having heard the signal plainly, I laid me down, and being very much fatigued, I fell sound asleep, when shortly I was awoke by the noise of a gun, and starting up i heard a man call me by the name of governor and presently i knew the captain's voice when climbing up to the top of the hill there he stood and pointing to the ship he embraced me in his arms my dear friend and deliverer says he there's your ship for she is all yours and so are we and all that belongs to her i cast my eyes to the ship and there she rode about a half a mile off the shore for they had weighed her anchor as soon as they were masters of her, and the weather being fair had brought her to an anchor just against the mouth of a little creek, and the tide being up they had brought the pinnace in near the place where I had first landed my rafts, and so landed just at my door. I was at first ready to sink down with surprise, for I saw my deliverance indeed visibly put into my hands, all things easy, 
and a large ship just ready to carry me away whither I pleased to go. He perceived my situation, and immediately pulls a bottle out of his pocket, and gave me a dram of cordial, which he had brought on purpose for me. After I drank it, I sat down upon the ground, and it was a good while before I could speak to him. After some time I came to myself, and then I embraced him in my turn as my deliverer, and we rejoiced together. I told him I looked upon him as a man sent from heaven to deliver me, and that the whole transaction seemed to be a chain of wonders, and such things as these were the testimonies we had of a secret hand of providence governing the world, and an evidence that the eyes of an infinite power could search into the remotest corner of the world, and send help to the miserable whenever he pleased, nor did I forget to return thanks to God for all his mercies. When we had talked a while, the captain told me he had brought me some little refreshment, such as the ship afforded, and such as the wretches who had been so long his masters had not plundered him of. Upon this he called aloud to his men, and told them to bring the things ashore that were for the governor, and it was a splendid present. First he had brought me a case of bottles full of cordial waters, six large bottles of Madeira wine, two pounds of excellent tobacco, twelve good pieces of the ship's beef, and six pieces of pork, with a bag of peas, and about a hundred weight of biscuit. He brought me also a box of sugar, a box of flour, a bag full of lemons, and two bottles of lime juice, and abundance of other things. But besides these, and what was a thousand times more useful to me, he brought me six clean new shirts, six very good neckcloths, two pairs of gloves, one pair of shoes, a hat, and one pair of stockings, and a very good suit of clothes of his own, which had been worn very little, but the clothes felt very awkward and uneasy upon me at first. After all these things were brought into my little apartment, we began to consult what was to be done with the prisoners we had, and whether we might venture to take them away with us or no, especially two of them, whom we knew to be incorrigible and refractory to the last degree, and the captain said he knew that they were such rogues that there was no obliging them. And if he did carry them away, it must be in irons as malefactors to be delivered over to justice at the first English colony he could come at. Upon this I told him I durst undertake to bring the two men he spoke of, to make it their own request that he should leave them upon the island, of which the captain said he should be very glad. I accordingly sent for them, and entered seriously into discourse with them upon their circumstances. One of them answered in the name of the rest, that they had nothing to say but this, that when they were taken the captain promised them their lives, and they humbly implored my mercy. But I told them I knew not what mercy to show them. For as for myself, I had resolved to quit the island with all my men, and had taken passage with the captain to go to England, and as for the captain, he would not carry them to England, but as prisoners in irons, to be tried for mutiny and running away with the ship, the consequence of which, they must needs know, would be the gallows, so that I could not tell what was best for them, unless they had a mind to take their fate in the island. If they desired that, I did not care, as I had liberty to leave it, I had some inclination to give them their lives, if they could shift on shore. They seemed very thankful for it, and said they would rather venture to stay there than to be carried to England to be hanged. I then told them I would let them into the story of my living there, and put them into the way of making it easy to them. Accordingly, I gave them the whole history of the place, and of my coming to it, showed them my fortifications, the way I made my bread, planted my corn, cured my grapes, and in a word, all that was necessary to make them easy. I told them the story of the Spaniards that were to be expected, for whom I left a letter, 
and made them promise to treat them in common with themselves. I left them five muskets, three fowling pieces, and three swords. I had about a barrel and a half of powder, which I left them. I gave them a description of the way I managed the goats, and directions to milk and fatten them, to make both butter and cheese. In a word, I gave them every part of my own story, and I told them I would prevail with the captain to leave them two barrels of gunpowder more, and some garden seeds, which I told them I would have been very glad of. Also, I gave them the bag of peas which the captain had brought me, and bade them to be sure to sow and increase them. Having done this, I left them the next day and went on board the ship. The next morning, two of the five men came swimming to the ship's side, and making a most lamentable complaint of the other three, begged to be taken into the ship for God's sake, for they should be murdered. The captain pretended to have no power without me, but after some difficulty, and after their solemn promises of amendment, they were taken on board, and were shortly after soundly whipped, after which they proved very honest and quiet fellows. Some time after this I went with the boat on shore, the tide being up, with the things promised to the men, with which the captain, at my intercession, sent their chests and clothes which they took, and were very thankful for. I also encouraged them by telling them that if it lay in my way to send any vessel to take them in, I would not forget them. When I quitted this island, I carried on board for relics the great goatskin cap I made, my umbrella, and one of my parrots. Also I forgot not to take the money— I had had laid by me so long useless. And thus I left the island, the 19th of December, by the ship's account in the year 1686, after I had been upon it twenty-eight years, two months, and nineteen days, being delivered from the second captivity the same day of the month that I made my escape from among the moors at Salay. In this vessel, after a long voyage, I arrived in England, the 11th of June, in the year 1687, having been thirty-five years absent. When I came to England, I was as perfect a stranger as if I had never been known there. My benefactor and faithful steward, whom I left in trust with my money, was alive, but had had great misfortunes in the world, was become a widow the second time, and was in very low circumstances. I made her easy as to what she owed me, assuring her I would give her no trouble, but on the contrary, in gratitude to her former care and faithfulness to me, I relieved her as much as my little stock would afford, which at that time would indeed allow me to do but little for her, but I assured her I would never forget her former kindness to me nor did I forget her when I had sufficient to help her at a future time. I went down afterwards into Yorkshire, but my father was dead, and my mother and all the family extinct, except two sisters and two of the children of one of my brothers, and, as I had been long ago given over for dead, there had been no provision made for me, so that, in a word, I found nothing to relieve or assist me and the little money I had would not do much for me as to settling in the world. I met with one piece of gratitude, indeed, which I did not expect, and this was that the master of the ship whom I had so happily delivered, having given a very handsome account to the owners of the manner how I had saved the lives of the men and the ship, they invited me to meet them and some other merchants concerned, and altogether made me a very handsome compliment upon the subject, 
and a present of almost two hundred pounds sterling. But after making several reflections upon the circumstances of my life and how little way this would go towards settling me in the world, I resolved to go to Lisbon and see if I could get any information of the state of my plantation in the Brazils, and of what was become of my partner, who, I supposed, had for some years now given me over for dead. With this view, I took shipping for Lisbon, where I arrived in April following, my man Friday accompanying me very honestly in all these ramblings, and proving a most faithful servant upon all occasions. When I came to Lisbon, I found out by inquiry— and to my particular satisfaction, my old friend, the captain of the ship, who first took me up at sea, off the shore of Africa, he was now grown old, and had left off the sea, having put his son into the ship, and who still used the Brazil trade. The old man did not know me, and I scarcely knew him, but he soon recollected me when I told him who I was. After some passionate expressions of our old acquaintance, I inquired after my plantation and my partner. The old man told me he had not been in the Brazils for about nine years, but that he could assure me that when he came away my partner was living, but that the trustees, whom I had joined with him to take cognizance of my part, were both dead, that, however, he believed that I should have a very good account of the improvement of the plantation, for that, in the general belief of my being cast away and drowned, my trustees had given in the account of the produce of my plantation to the procurator fiscal, who had appropriated it, in case I never came to claim it, one-third to the king and two-thirds to the monastery of St. Augustine, to be expended for the benefit of the poor and for the conversion of the Indians to the Catholic faith, but that if I appeared, or any one for me, to claim the inheritance, it would be restored." only that the improvement or annual production being, as he said, distributed to charitable uses, he thought could not be restored. I was a little concerned and uneasy at this account, and inquired of the old captain how it came to pass that the trustees should thus dispose of my effects, when they knew that I had made my will, and made him, the Portuguese captain, my universal heir, etc. He told me that was true, but as there was no proof of my being dead, he could not act as executor until some certain account should come of my death, and that, besides, he was not willing to intermeddle with a thing so remote. That it was true he had registered my will and put in his claim, and, could he have given any account of my being dead or alive, he would have acted by procuration and taken possession of my ingenio, the sugar-house, and given his son, who was now in the Brazils, orders to do it. The old man then asked me if he should put me in a method to make my claim to the plantation. I told him I thought to go over to it myself. He said I might do so if I pleased, but that if I did not, there were ways enough to secure my right, and immediately to appropriate the profits to my use. And as there were ships in the river of Lisbon just ready to go to the Brazils, he made me enter my name in a public register with his affidavit affirming upon oath that I was alive, and that I was the same person who took up the land for planting the said plantation at first. This being regularly attested by a notary and a procuration affixed, he directed me to send it, with a letter of his writing to a merchant of his acquaintance, at the place, and then proposed my staying with him till an account came of the return. Never anything was more honorable than the proceedings upon this procuration, for in less than seven months I received a large packet from the survivors of my trustees, the merchants for whose account I went to sea, and, as the Brazil ships come all in fleets, the same ships which brought my letters brought my goods, and the effects were safe in the Tagus.' 
before the letters came to my hands. By these it appeared I was now master all on a sudden of above five thousand pounds sterling in money, and had an estate, as I might well call it, in the Brazils, of above a thousand pounds a year, as safe as any landed estate in England. In a word, I was in a condition which I could scarcely understand, or how to compose myself for its enjoyment. The first thing I did was to recompense my original benefactor, my good old sea-captain, who had been first charitable to me in my distress, kind to me in the beginning, and honest to me at the end. I showed him all that was sent me. I told him that next to the providence of heaven which disposes all things, it was owing to him, and that it now lay on me to reward him. So I sent for a notary, and caused him to draw a procuration, empowering him to be my receiver of the annual profits of my plantation, and appointing my partner to account to him, and to make the returns by the usual fleets to him in my name, adding a clause in the end being a grant of one hundred moidors a year during his life, out of the effects, and fifty moidors a year to his son after him for his life, and thus I requited my old man. I was now to consider which way to steer my course next, and what to do with the estate that Providence had thus put into my hands, and, indeed, I had more care upon my head now than I had in my silent state of life on the island, where I wanted nothing but what I had, and had nothing but what I wanted. As I had rewarded the old captain fully, and to his satisfaction, who had been my former benefactor, so I began to think of my poor widow, whose husband had been my first benefactor, and she, while it was in her power, my faithful steward and instructor. So the first thing I did, I got a merchant in Lisbon to write to his correspondent in London, not only to pay a bill, but to go find her out, and carry her in money a hundred pounds from me, and to talk with her and comfort her in her poverty, by telling her she should, if I lived, have a farther supply. At the same time I sent my two sisters in the country, each of them a hundred pounds, they being, though not in want, yet not in very good circumstances, one having been married and left a widow, and the other having a husband not so kind to her as he should be. But among all my reflections or acquaintances I could not yet pitch upon one to whom I durst commit the gross of my stock. I had once a mind to have gone to the Brazils and have settled myself there, for I was, as it were, naturalized to the place, but that I really did not know with whom to leave my effects behind me. So I resolved at last to go to England with them, where, if I arrived, I concluded I should make some acquaintance or find some relations that would be faithful to me, and accordingly I prepared to go for England with all my wealth. Having settled my affairs, sold my cargo, and turned all my effects into good bills of exchange, my next difficulty was which way to go to England. I had been accustomed enough to the sea, and yet I had a strange aversion to go to England by sea at that time. And though I could give no reason for it, yet the difficulty increased upon me so much that though I had once shipped my baggage in order to go, yet I altered my mind, and that not once but two or three times. It is true I had been very unfortunate by sea, and this might be one of my reasons, but let no man strike the strong impulses of his own thoughts in cases of such moment. Two ships, each of which I had engaged to go in, but again withdrew my agreement, miscarried, namely, one was taken by the Algerines, and the other was cast away on the start near Torbay, and all the people drowned except three, so that in either of those vessels I had been made miserable and in which most it was hard to say. 
Having been thus harassed in my thoughts, my old pilot, to whom I communicated everything, pressed me earnestly not to go by sea, but either to go by land to the groin and cross over the Bay of Biscay to Rochelle, from whence it was but an easy and safe journey by land to Paris, and so to Calais and Dover, or go up to Madrid, and so all the way by land through France. In a word, I was so prepossessed against my going to sea at all, except from Calais to Dover, that I resolved to travel all the way by land, which, as I was not in haste, and did not value the charge, was by much the pleasanter way. And to make it more so, my old captain brought an English gentleman, the son of a merchant in Lisbon, who was willing to travel with me, after which we picked up two more, who were English, and merchants also, and two young Portuguese gentlemen, the last going to Paris only, so that we were in all six of us and five servants, the two merchants and the two Portuguese contenting themselves with one servant between two to save the charge, and as for me, I got an English sailor to travel with me as a servant, besides my man Friday, who was too much a stranger to be capable of supplying the place of a servant upon the road. In this manner we set out from Lisbon, and our company being all very well mounted and armed, we made a little troop, whereof they did me the honour to call me captain, as well because I was the oldest man as because I had two servants, and indeed was the originator of the whole journey. Four French gentlemen who had been stopped on the French side of the passes, as we were now on the Spanish, had found out a guide who had brought them over the mountains by such ways that they were not much incommoded with the snow, and, where they met with snow in any quantity, they said it was frozen hard enough to bear them and their horses. We sent for this guide, who told us that he would undertake to carry us the same way with no hazard from the snow, provided we were armed sufficiently to protect us from wild beasts, for, he said, upon these snow regions it was common for wolves to show themselves at the foot of the mountains, being made ravenous for want of food while the ground was covered with snow. We told him we were well enough prepared for such creatures as they were, if he would insure us from a kind of two-legged wolves— from which we were told most danger was to be apprehended, especially on the French side of the mountains. He satisfied us there was no danger of that kind in the way that we were to go, so we readily agreed to follow him, as did also twelve other gentlemen with their servants, some French, some Spanish, who, as I said, had attempted to go and were obliged to come back again. Accordingly, we all set out from Pampeluna with our guide on the 15th of November, and, indeed, I was surprised when, instead of going forward, he came directly back with us above twenty miles, on the same road by which we came from Madrid, when, having passed two rivers and come into the plain country, we found ourselves in a warm climate again, where the country was pleasant and no snow was to be seen. But on a sudden, turning to the left, he approached the mountains by another way, and though it is true the hills and the precipices looked dreadful, yet he made so many tours and meanders, and led us by such winding ways, that we insensibly passed the height of the mountains without being much encumbered with the snow, and, all on a sudden, he showed us the pleasant, fruitful provinces of Languedoc and Gascoigne, all green and flourishing, though indeed they were at a great distance, and we had some rough way to pass yet. We were a little uneasy, however, when we found it snowed so fast one whole day and night that we could not travel, but he bade us be easy. We should soon be past it all. We found, indeed, that we began to descend every day and to come more north than before, and so, depending upon our guide, we went on. It was about two hours before night when our guide, being something before us and not just in sight, 
Out rushed three monstrous wolves, and after them a bear out of a hollow way adjoining to a thick wood. Two of the wolves flew upon the guide, and had he been half a mile before us, he had been devoured indeed before we could have helped him. One of them fastened upon his horse, and the other attacked the man with that violence that he had not time or not presence of mind enough to draw his pistol, but hallooed and cried out to us most lustily. My man Friday being next to me, I bade him ride up and see what was the matter. As soon as Friday came in sight of the man, he hallooed as loud as the other, Oh, master! Oh, master! But like a bold fellow, rode directly directly up to the man, and with a pistol shot the wolf that attacked him through the head. It was happy for the poor man that it was my man Friday, for he, having been used to that kind of creature in his country, had no fear upon him, but went up close to him and shot him as above, whereas any of us would have fired at a farther distance, and might, perhaps, have either missed the wolf or shot the man. But it was enough to have terrified a bolder man than I, and indeed it alarmed all our company, when, with the noise of Friday's pistol, we heard on both sides the most dismal howling of wolves, and the noise redoubled by the echo of the mountains. My man Friday had delivered our guide, and when we came up he was helping him off from his horse, for the man was both hurt and frightened, and indeed the last more than the first. We had one dangerous place to pass, of which our guide told us. If there were any more wolves in the country we should find them there, and this was a small plain, surrounded with woods on every side, and a long, narrow defile or lane which we were to pass to get through the wood, and then we should come to a village where we were to lodge. It was within half an hour of sunset when we entered the first wood, and a little after sunset we came into the plain. We met with nothing in the first wood, except that in a little plain within the wood, which was not above two furlongs over, we saw five great wolves cross the road full speed, one after another, as if they had been in chase of some prey they had in view. They took no notice of us, and were gone, and out of our sight in a few moments. This gave us leisure to charge our pieces again, and that we might lose no time we kept going. But we had little more than loaded our fusils and put ourselves into readiness when we heard a terrible noise in the wood on our left. The night was coming on, and the light began to be dusky, which made it the worse on our side, but the noise increasing, we could perceive that it was the howling of those ravenous creatures, and on a sudden we perceived two or three troops of wolves, one on our left, one behind us, and one in our front, and we knew not what course to take, but the creatures resolved us soon, for they gathered about us in hopes of prey, and I verily believe there were three hundred of them. It happened very much to our advantage that, at the entrance into the wood, there lay some large timber trees cut down, and I drew my little troop in among these trees, and placing ourselves in a line behind one long tree, I advised them, all to alight, and keeping that tree before us for a breastwork, to stand in a triangle or three fronts, enclosing our horses in the center, we did so, and it was well we did, for never was a more furious charge than the creatures made upon us in this place." They came on us with a growling kind of noise, and mounted the piece of timber, as if they were only rushing upon their prey, and this fury of theirs, it seemed, was principally occasioned by their seeing our horses behind us, which was the prey they aimed at. I ordered our men to fire, as before, every other man, and they took their aim so sure that they killed several wolves at the first volley, but there was a necessity to keep a continual firing, for they came on like devils, those behind, pushing on those before— when we had fired the second volley of our fusils, we thought they stopped a little, and I hoped they would have gone off, but it was but a moment, 
for others came forward again, so we fired two volleys of our pistols, and, I believe, in these four firings we killed seventeen or eighteen of them, and lamed twice as many. Yet they came on again. I was loath to spend our last shot too hastily, so I called my servant, not Friday, but my other man, and, giving him a horn of powder, I bid him lay a train all along the piece of timber, and let it be a large train. He did so and had but just time to get away when the wolves came up to it and some were got upon it when i snapping an uncharged pistol close to the powder set it on fire those that were upon the timber were scorched with it and six or seven of them fell or rather jumped in among us with the force and fright of the fire we dispatched these in an instant and the rest were so frightened with the light that they drew back a little upon which i ordered our last pistols to be fired off in one volley and after that we gave a shout Upon this the wolves turned tail, and we sallied immediately upon near twenty lame ones, whose dreadful crying and howling scared the rest, so that they all fled and left us. I have nothing uncommon to take notice of in my passage through France, nothing but what other travellers have given an account of with much more advantage than I can. I travelled from Toulouse to Paris, and without any considerable stay came to Calais, and landed safe in Dover the 14th of January, after having a severe cold season to travel in. I was now come to the centre of my travels, and had in a little time all my newly discovered estate safe about me, the bills of exchange which I had brought with me having been currently paid. My principal guide and privy counsellor, was my good old widow, who, in gratitude for the money I had sent her, thought no pains too much or care too great to employ for me. I began to think of leaving my effects with this woman and setting out for Lisbon, and so to the Brazils, but now another scruple came in my way, and that was religion. For as I had entertained some doubts about the Roman religion, even while I was abroad, especially in my state of solitude, so I knew there was no going to the Brazils for me much less going to settle there, unless I resolved to embrace the Catholic religion without any reserve, except, on the other hand, I resolved to be a sacrifice to my principles, be a martyr for religion, and die in the Inquisition. So I resolved to stay at home, and, if I could find means, to dispose of my plantation. To this purpose I wrote to my old friend at Lisbon, who, in return, gave me notice that he could easily dispose of it there but that if I thought fit to give him leave to offer it in my name to the two merchants, the survivors of my trustees who lived in the Brazils and most fully understood the value of it, who lived just upon the spot and whom I knew to be very rich, so that he believed they would be fond of buying it, he did not doubt but I should make four or five thousand pieces of eight the more for it. Accordingly I agreed, and gave him orders to offer it to them, and he did so, and in about eight months more, the ships being then returned, he sent me an account that they had accepted the offer, and had remitted thirty-three thousand pieces of eight to a correspondent of theirs at Lisbon to pay for it. In return I signed the instrument of sale in the form which they sent from Lisbon, and sent it to my old man, who sent me bills of exchange for thirty-two thousand eight hundred pieces of eight for the estate, reserving the payment of one hundred moidores a year to him, the old man, during his life, and fifty moidores afterwards to his son for his life, which I had promised them and which the plantation was to make good as a rent charge. And thus I have given the first part of a life of fortune and adventure, a life of providence's checker-work, and of a variety which the world will seldom be able to show the like of, beginning foolishly, but closing much more happily than I had ever any reason even to hope for. Anyone would think that in this state of complicated good fortune, 
I was past running any more hazards. But I was inured to a wandering life, had no family, nor many relations, nor, however rich, had I contracted much acquaintance. And though I had sold my estate in the Brazils, yet I could not keep that country out of my head, and had a great mind to be upon the wing again, especially I could not resist the strong inclination I had to see my island. My true friend, the widow, earnestly dissuaded me from it, and so far prevailed with me that for almost seven years she prevented my running abroad during which time I took my two nephews, the children of one of my brothers, into my care. The eldest, having something of his own, I bred up as a gentleman, and gave him a settlement of some addition to his estate after my decease. The other I put out to the captain of a ship, and after five years, finding him a sensible, bold, enterprising young fellow, I put him into a good ship and sent him to sea. And this young fellow afterwards drew me in, old as I was, to farther adventures myself. In the meantime, I, in part, settled myself here. For first of all, I married, and had three children, two sons and one daughter. But my wife dying, and my nephew coming home with good success from a voyage to Spain, my inclination to go abroad and his importunity prevailed, and I engaged to go in his ship as a private trader to the East Indies. In this voyage I visited my new colony in the island, saw my successors, the Spaniards, had the whole story of their coming to and adventures in the island after my departure. I may write later of all these things. The end. A Candlelight Stories audio production.